Real News. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess of the committee at any time. This hearing is entitled An Examination of Facebook and Its Impact on the Financial Services and Housing Sectors. I now recognize myself for five minutes to give an opening statement. Today, we're here to examine the impact of Facebook on the financial services and housing sectors. Our sole witness is Facebook's chairman and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook's plans to create a digital currency, Libra, and a digital wallet, Calibra, raise many concerns relating to privacy, trading risk, discrimination, opportunities for diverse-owned financial firms, national security, monetary policy, and the stability of the global financial system. I and other Democrats have called for a moratorium on Facebook's development of its digital currency, Libra, and digital wallet, Calibra, until Congress can examine the issues associated with a big tech company developing these digital products and take action. As I have examined Facebook's various problems, I've come to the conclusion that it would be beneficial for all if Facebook concentrates on addressing its many existing deficiencies and failures before proceeding any further on the Libra project. Let's review the record. First, on diversity and inclusion. Facebook has utterly failed. Facebook's executive ranks and workforce continue to be mostly white and male. Since Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Push Coalition called upon Silicon Valley companies, including Facebook, to release its diversity statistics more than five years ago, the representation of African Americans and Hispanics has increased by less than 2%. Facebook also told us that they have zero dollars managed by diverse firms. On fair housing, Facebook has been sued by the National Fair Housing Alliance for enabling advertisers to engage in discrimination on its advertising platforms. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has also filed an official charge of discrimination against Facebook for its advertising practices, including the company's own ad delivery algorithms, which were found to have a discriminatory impact when advertisers did not target their audience in discriminatory ways. I understand that Facebook has refused to cooperate with HUD's fair housing investigation by refusing to provide relevant data. On competition and fairness, Facebook is the subject of an antitrust investigation by the attorneys generals of 47 states and the District of Columbia. On protecting consumers, Facebook was fined $5 billion by the Federal Trade Commission for deceiving consumers and failing to keep their data private. On elections, Facebook enabled the Russian government to interfere with our election in 2016 with ads designed to pit Americans against each other, suppress the vote, and boost Trump. For example, Facebook allowed a counterfeit Black Lives Matter webpage to operate with the goal of discouraging African Americans from voting. Three years later, these activities are still continuing on Facebook. We learned just this week that Russia and Iran are using the same tactics to meddle in our next election. Now on political speech. Last week, you announced that Facebook would not be doing fact-checking 
on political ads, giving anyone, Facebook labels a politician, a platform to lie, mislead, and misform the American people, which will also allow Facebook to sell more ads. The impact of this will be a massive... Okay, I just want to say, uh, first of all, Zuckerberg looks like a robot. Second, I just wanted to say... Uh, Maxine is upset because he's not fact checking because he actually, if he actually fact checked, Biden's ads would no longer be allowed on Facebook. Kamala's, Warren's, none of those would be allowed on Facebook at all. And the thing is, only the Trump administration's ads would be allowed there because they're actually factually based. So this is them being salty, punishing him for not removing Trump uh, ads, for not banning conservatives because he's under a lot of scrutiny right now and he wants to make money with his cryptocurrency. So, you know, what's the old, um, you know, saying? Uh, hurt them, hurt them where uh, in their pocket because that's where they feel it. Uh, this is exactly what they're doing. Listen to her. She's telling you that voter suppression effort that will move at the speed of a click. Your claim to promote freedom of speech does not ring true. Mr. Zuckerberg, each month, 2.7 billion people use your products. That's over a third of the world's population. That's huge. That's so big that it's clear to me and to anyone who hears this list that Perhaps you believe that you're above the law, and it appears that you are aggressively increasing the size of your company and are willing to step on or over anyone, including your competitors, women, people of color, your own users, and even our democracy to get what you want. All of these problems I have outlined, and given the company's size and reach, it should be clear why we have serious concerns about your plans to establish a global digital currency that would challenge the U.S. dollar. In fact, you have opened up a serious discussion about whether Facebook should be broken up. The chair now recognizes the ranking member of the committee, the gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. McHenry, for five minutes for an opening statement. <laughs> they're really salty, guys. They want to remove them because they're not doing what they asked them to do. Let's take a listen to this uh, opening statement. Then it's going to go into mandatory break. Uh, and then I'll be back and we'll start breaking this down. But just a little bit because I want to talk about Afghanistan. I just pinned to my profile on Twitter at Tori underscore says my newest piece about the Pelosi Schiff uh, gallivanting in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, this one is about Afghanistan, and we're going to talk about that. Let's take a listen to this opening statement. Thank you, Chair Wilma Waters. Thank you, Mr. Zuckerberg, for your appearance. Today is a trial on American innovation. There's a growing concern about the role uh, that technology plays in our lives. That's warranted. That's necessary. Yes, technology has led to greater prosperity, more freedom of expression, and the ability to transcend the limits of space and time to connect us with one another. It's a powerful tool, powerful tool for our society developed here in the United States, gone global. But we know there's also a downside to all of this. The vitriol on social media is frightening. The growing inequality between those who have access to the latest tech gadgets remain on the coasts. 
while folks living in rural America are still trying to get the same connectivity necessary to compete in a global marketplace. Not to mention the anxiety of the age. That's a deep cultural moment for us, not as politicians, but as Americans. That nervous feeling that you need to check your phone throughout the day. That's something that is now a cultural occurrence for all of us, especially members of Congress, most of whom in this room are doing that right now. There's a lot of anger out there, and now it's being directed at the architects of this system. That's why you're here, Mr. Zuckerberg. That's why you're here today. You are one of the titans of what we call the digital age. There's an enormous amount of responsibility, an enormous weight based off the innovation that you've wrought. And maybe it's not about Libra. It's not just about some housing ads, no. And maybe it's not really even about Facebook at all. It's that larger question. And fair or not fair, you're here today to answer for the digital age. But, of course, you're not America's first innovator, and we hope you're not America's last. This is not the first time that America has faced difficult questions about technology. Sadly, throughout the history of innovation, a major theme is the exploitation of fear. Politicians, enabled by special interests and a lack of understanding of new technology, use fear to justify what is ultimately a power grab. New laws, new regulation, but ultimately old and tired ways to centralize power here in Washington or other systems of government. Some of this has led in the past to comical results, and we hope to avoid it now. But just as one example, there was a time when legislators pushed for what was then called red flag laws, which required vehicles, so-called horseless carriages of that age, to immediately stop on the side of the road and disassemble the automobile until equestrians or livestock was sufficiently pacified. But, ultim- uh, but other times in history, the use of fear was not so funny. Our last hearing on Libra, for example, was a moment when members of Congress on this dais actually compared the technology, that technology of Libra, to the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Will the gentleman yield? Look, I have my own qualms about Facebook and Libra. Wait a minute. Did he just interrupt him in the middle of his opening statement? Mr. Sherman, what's going on? Why do you want him to yield? Oh, dear. This has not happened. Interrupting. No. The time belongs to the gentleman from North Carolina. Thank oh you my for gosh. taking the debate. Look, I have my qualms about Facebook and Libra. I do. And the shortcomings of big tech. There are many. Yes, there are. But if history has taught us anything, it's better to be on the side of American innovation, competition, and most importantly, the freedom to build a better future for all of us. Progress is not preordained. And American progress and American domination of free speech and global rights is not preordained. Let us not forget that the wave of innovation is spreading across the world with or without us. So that's why I believe that American innovation is on trial this day in this hearing. 
And the question is, are we going to spend our time trying to devise ways for government planners to centralize and control as to who, when, and how innovators can innovate? Or will we spend time contemplating and leading the way on the question of whether or not it will be American innovation that leads the next century? Being led by American values, the notion that we have of the rule of law and free speech rights and American-driven jobs and innovation. Are we going to spend our time building a brighter future for Americans or trying to tear each other apart? I yield back. Okay, guys. So all of us want to see Zuckerberg crucified because he's taken our data. He's sold our data. He's done a lot of bad stuff, right? I agree. But the bottom line is here, what we have is the Democrats trying to stop innovation. If you are not obedient to do what we say, you will not be allowed to innovate. This is what Maxine Waters said. McHenry, on the other hand, says, I don't like Facebook. I think what they've done are violations and all this stuff. But the bottom line is, if we intimidate innovative companies, if we intimidate uh, you know, the advancement of technology because we have to be subordinate to those that are in power, then we're not going to be moving forward and everything will be centralized and governed by the party that rules. That is basically what he is saying. Even though we don't like what Facebook has done, even though we know that Facebook has been very aggressive against conservatives, has silenced voices, etc., you know, right now, Facebook is fa facing a $3 billion lawsuit by Laura Loomer for excluding her from the public discourse, for labeling her as dangerous, along with others, and removing her content and, you know, creating algorithms that silence us and throw us into Facebook jail. Yes, he does all this, and he has to be very careful right now because right now he's invested a lot of money in Libra, and here are the Democrats saying, if you don't help us win 2020, you are not allowed to do this. They want to create legislation to limit people on being able to innovate. They are telling you, you either do what we say or you're not allowed to have a business. That's basically it. Regardless if this is cryptocurrency, creating another Facebook or, you know, inventing a new bottle or whatever, it has to be along the lines and the stipulations that the Democrats or whoever is in power sets. Unacceptable. This is the United States of America. You're allowed to do anything. So even though I want to see Mark Zuckerberg under that bus and crying for his mommy because he's lost all this money for all the obscene actions he's done against free speech. This is not about free speech right now. It is about innovation. It is about allowing people to develop new technologies and new products without the permission of whoever is in office. I want to make that clear because a lot of people, I've seen it from my own friends and other reporters. How could they say, why are we supporting Facebook? What's going on? We're not saying that Zuckerberg is a good guy. We're not saying that his actions are okay and we forgive them. What we're saying is that's not what we're talking about. So I wanted to make that assertion to you guys by playing these two opening statements because tomorrow we're going to talk about it.
But I want that to percolate a little bit, right? For you guys to just think about it and say, all right, okay, Maxine's like, why aren't you taking ads? Why aren't you fact checking? We don't need people to fact check. You can fact check yourself. Okay, you can decide what you want or do not want to see. You are able to block things. You are able to request not to see things. It is not up to Zuckerberg, King Zuckerberg of Facebook to say what is allowed and what is real and what is fake. It is up to us right now, though. That is not the discussion, right? We're talking about his ability to have Libra and to be able to innovate. But Maxine Waters made it clear you're not doing your job. So why should we let you have Libra? That is basically what she said. And what McHenry is telling everyone is, I don't agree with what Facebook's doing, but this is about innovation. And he made it clear. So unfortunately, you know, at this day and age, people are so congested with so much rubbish and misinformation that they can't listen to the words and discern what is actually being discussed. So it's not about throwing Zuckerberg under the bus and holding him accountable and his free speech violations and his bias, etc. This is about allowing people to innovate, to create new markets, new consumer products, uh, anything without, you know, having to ask for permission to do so by people like Maxine Waters, by people like the Clintons by the Democrats, by the deep state, or by them. Who's they? Who's them? That should be coming to fruition right after the 2020 elections. Real news. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Tory Says Show. I guess this is going to be an uninterrupted hour, which kind of sucks because for the first hour, the whole station was knocked offline. Now we had about 20 minutes, which I covered the Mark Zuckerberg, uh, opening statements. Uh, that's all I wanted to cover. So, uh, later on this evening, I will upload the whole show. It'll be extended. It'll be my first full hour on Brexit. And, um, in that hour, I will be discussing, uh, uh I was discussing, but <laughs> no one was listening. Uh, how Brexit failed. So the vote failed today. Um, and, you know, the, the, the IG report in regards to FISA is more important now than ever. Uh, like I said the other day, uh, there are, uh, there was a very top level CIA official that was, um, deposed. And that came on the heels of Nadler being deposed, which is pretty curious, uh, because all of us, whoever actually saw, uh, the hearing yesterday, uh, that we were talking about on the show, uh, saw that there was a very different Nadler. A Nadler that didn't say much, a Nadler that would not say a lot, and that was missing in action and just suddenly appeared. I don't know if they have a deal to allow them to appear for things while they're undergoing, you know, um, their, uh, I would say, legal <laughs> ventures. Um, 
So on on that note, I just wanted to say things are really, really happening. Uh, I'm hearing that today uh, Brennan is actually uh, being, uh, was subpoenaed and appearing before a preliminary questioning session uh, before he actually meets with Durham. So we'll see. Uh, my ears are open and I'm waiting to get that information. Now, in this hour, I'm going to skip right through commercials so we get that extra five minutes. I wanted you to revisit the visit of Pelosi and Schiff. So for when it happened, you know, on Monday, I was telling you guys about it and how, you know, my sources are telling me there's some really iffy stuff going around. And I didn't want to um, say too much until I had everything. Well... Now I finalized everything. I uh, wrote that article about Jordan yesterday, uh, which was interesting, right? Because it clearly puts it out. And from what I hear, the White House has already requested the transcripts uh, yesterday afternoon. So we will have that information. Now, I know a lot of people talk about the Logan Act. And, it, you know, we always talk, talk, talk. The law is there, but it's never been applied. I think it's about time we do it because what they did in Afghanistan was worse. I mean, for me, was worse than what they tried to do in Jordan. See, as a king, as a monarch, you know that there's always underhanded actions, right? You always know that there's always someone out to get you, you know, since forever, ever, ever, uh, this is something that we see in history books where, you know, the king's son wants to take him out or whatever, right? So they always know that there's someone underhanding you at all times or trying to. In Afghanistan, though, that's not the case. Yes, leadership may have been under attack by, you know, um, other political parties, the Taliban, for example, which are a political party. I want to stress that because not a lot of people know that because for some reason we just consider them terrorists, period. They are, but they're not. They were weaponized during the USSR Russian Jihad where they helped the Chechnyans. And unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, weaponizing your own people is not something we haven't seen before. It's happening in our nation. They're weaponizing idiots to think that, you know, up is down, down is up. So why wouldn't it happen somewhere else? Now, here's the deal with Afghanistan. So as you all know that in August, while Schiff was in the Ukraine getting, uh, you know, gathering supposedly manufactured information uh, about uh, President Trump, right, to, to, to validate their fake, you know, whistleblower that, you know, um, Daniel Jones came up with. And I want to tell you guys, do you know why we don't know who the whistleblower is or why it's not coming forward? Because Daniel Jones was involved. And, you know, that's a problem when people realize it's the same guy that did the Kavanaugh. But moving forward, they 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 had this meeting set up at Camp David. It was a secret meeting. And it wasn't um, it wasn't so much that we were imposing. We were trying to me- mediate. I've explained the dynamics of the Taliban and Afghanistan. So the Taliban have always been weaponized. They've been weaponized since the early 80s, right? So that means that we've got them for nearly four decades as being weaponized militants, you know, radicalizing them and being uh, mercenaries in short, right? 
So here we are at the point where they're done fighting. Like they said that in 2017, like we're so done fighting. Like we don't want to fight anymore. Like this is dumb. We just want to have a voice because we're conservative. They were always like the conservative progressives. I kid you not. Like if you look at the history of the Taliban, there were the ones that were like, it's okay for girls to wear mini skirts and boots. They don't all have to wear, you know, the whole burqa stuff. Uh, they were more progressive, but still conservative, meaning that, you know, you can do that. But once you're married, you got to be conservative kind of thing. It was like um like a middle of the road thing. Honestly, that's the way it was. So they've been weaponized and now they want to go back to those roots. But unfortunately, their leadership is tainted, kind of like in the United States. You've got 50 percent. Well, it's actually 60 to 70 percent here of corrupt clowns and 30 percent good ones there. It's about 60, 40. And the 60% are actually being funded by Qatar. You know, the Muslim Brotherhood, Turkey, Qatar, etc., etc., etc. So, after President Trump was elected, the Afghani government decided, you know what? We're going to let them be a political party. That's what they want. That'll bring peace. And so they negotiate and they're like, all right, let's do it. And in, in 2018, they were like, all right, let's do it. So the Afghan government and the Taliban party have been in discussion. Like, all right, guys, well, we want a headquarters. And you so the president, president Gurney's like, where do you want to have your headquarters? Do you want it in Kabul? Do you want it here? Do you want it there? Like, where do you want it? And through discussions, they're like, well, we're not going to have it in Afghanistan. We're going to have it in Qatar. And it's like, mm. and I've said this before, it's like the Democrats saying that their DNC headquarters is in Mexico. It's like, what are you doing? And it's not Mexico. Let's pretend because it's further. Let's say that they wanted to place their, you know, DNC headquarters in Morocco, which is the actual birthplace of Barack Obama. So <laughs> they're kind of like puzzled. Well, no, you're a political party for Afghanistan. You have to be here. So that way there's transparency in your documentation and your funding. I mean, that's the only way a political party can stand. We need to know where you're getting your money from. We can't have outside influence. So you need to be in Afghanistan. And the Taliban are like, no, we're going to Qatar. Ton. Period. We're not talking about it. So President Trump decides to sit them down and say, all right, tell me what the problem is. Let's figure this out. Because the more you guys are clashing heads, the more there's terrorism, there's attacks between, you know, the same people. This is like long, deep-seated issues of four decades. Now, I'm President Trump, and I didn't do this. So let's kind of like put our chips on the table and talk about it. Well... Something happened and an attack happened and, you know, 11 people died. One of them was a U.S. soldier. So the meeting was called off. The meeting was called off, ironically, when Schiff was on his way back from the Ukraine. I'm just saying. So anyway, uh, just now that you have the context, this is what happened. Now, nobody knew about this meeting, and everyone started reporting, oh, my gosh, President Trump is meeting with terrorists. Oh, my gosh. Right? Remember? Well, yeah, why not? Let's sit down and have dialogue. No more unnecessary deaths. Let's do this. Great, right? Everyone's for that. We want peace. We don't need more death. Well, as you know, they decided to take off over the weekend. Over the weekend, they decided that they're going to go. So they land in, on Saturday in Jordan, and they got egg on their face from the king of Jordan. Like, yeah, um, so this is really messed up. Uh, I'm going to have to say no. And then they leave to go to Afghanistan. But here's the thing. 
earlier that morning, uh, you know, Defense Secretary Esper met with them and he met, uh, with, uh, the, um, uh, president of Afghanistan on in the morning discussed with them, uh, you know, that we're fully going to support them. Uh, we are totally on your side. You know, they're having elections now. He's like, whatever the outcome may be, we're still, um, you know, standing by your side. His actual quote is the United States remains fully committed to helping Afghans create a peaceful, stable, prosperous Afghanistan and is supporting the Afghans effort led by the government toward peace. That was his statement. Uh, they had uh, good discussions on how they can defuse the situation. Uh, this administration, as you know, wants to bring our troops back home. And um, that's something that the Democrats don't want. And, you know, I find it funny. And I'm just going to say this and just take it as you will. Secretary Esper made a very um, suspicious to me, suspect choice of numbers. He said, there's 14,000 troops. I want to reduce it to 8,600. So the numbers speak volumes for me. Uh, that says a lot. And I'm pretty sure uh, this is what's triggering the Democrats. Now, when Pelosi left Afghanistan, heading to uh, left um, Jordan to go to Afghanistan, she already knew that Esper had gotten there and he was doing his thing. Now, I want to remind everyone that when Pelosi went to the Ukraine and Italy um, in July of 2015, it cost us one hundred eighty-four thousand dollars. Okay, one hundred and eighty-four and a half thousand dollars. So think, how much did this trip cost us for her to go get egg on her face and do nothing and then go to Afghanistan and undermine the Trump administration? Because here's what she did. When she landed, she met with uh, Secretary Esper. She also met with um, uh, President um, Ghani. But Pelosi and her little minion Schiff, when they went to Afghanistan, they went with egg on their face. They were not going to leave unless they got something. And that, you know, feeling and that um, aggression came across when they were having discussions. Discussions that I feel are embarrassing. So, I mean, I kind of feel like the Taliban and most of them are terrorists feel sorry for us. And that annoys everything. <laughs> About this. So I'm going to read you Pelosi's statement and then I'm going to tell you what the layman translation of that is. Okay. So we can parse through words kind of like we did with the, um, opening statements for the Mark Zuckerberg testimony. Everyone's going to be writing about how we went soft on them or something. No one's really going to grasp the content, right? Because nobody, people don't listen anymore. So Pelosi said our delegation emphasized the central importance of combating the corruption which endangers security and undermines the Afghans' people's ability to achieve a stable and prosperous future. Huh. This is what she is trying to do. She's trying to say that the Afghan government is colluding or there's a quid pro quo with the Trump administration that is undermining their ability to make choices for peace. Okay, that's number one. 
She says, we underscored that the women of Afghanistan must be at the table for reconciliation talk. So basically, what she's saying is, our delegation went to Afghanistan to find out if President Trump withheld money from Afghanistan or promised them anything in order to put to bed the issue of the Taliban party. Since their meeting was canceled, we are sure the terrorist Taliban members or President of Afghanistan would give us some information. We also told them, even though their culture and religion doesn't bring women to the table, they have to because we said so. That's basically what she is telling you, okay? But here is how it actually panned out, you guys. So when they arrived, uh, they met, obviously, with the secretary, the president of Afghanistan, and the Taliban, uh, the Taliban leadership. Um, and they were kind of looking for some form of like evidence or documentation or statement, um, of a deal that was being brokered, uh, by the Secretary of Defense Esper. And Pelosi and her minions wanted in on it. They wanted to know what is the defense, uh, the Department of Defense uh, stating to them? What are they promising them? Why are we uh, negotiating? You know, they wanted to know how and, and, uh, you know, the, 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 um, I would say the mechanical workings of the deal that we're offering them, if there's a deal on the table and how it's being discussed, you know, they wanted to know, are we withholding any aid to Afghanistan? Because if we're withholding aid, then we're holding them hostage, right? That's what she would say. Not the fact that we would withhold aid because it's going to, you know, Taliban terrorists or anything. But anyway, so she wanted to know, like, are we withholding aid? Are we promising them money, uh, you know, in exchange for peace? Which, by the way, not a bad idea. Hey, if you have peaceful talks, we'll help fund the rebuilding of your infrastructure because we need to bring stability in this region. And we kind of been here for 18 years and we're tired of it. So this investment would be a good one. <laughs> you know, that sounds kind of fair, right? You would do it. I would do it, right? So Esper was there to send, you know, our troops home. And basically what Pelosi and her crew wanted to know is, how is he able to keep that promise? Because they're sending troops home. And, you know, how is he able to do it if they didn't even have a meeting and they're, you know, and it was canceled. So I have a lot of sources in the area. So one of them uh, is on a team. It's like a mediation team that the president of Afghanistan has created, which are either former Taliban or have good relationship with Taliban through, um, you know, family association or whatever. Uh, it's a mediation team. And he uh, explained to me, and I didn't even know this, that Obama helped ensure that Taliban terrorists that actually killed people and did bombings that were leadership were actually on a U.N. blacklist. Now, take a listen to this. He said that Obama made sure that they were taken off the blacklist. Right. Right. But it was the Trump administration that has been urging Afghanistan to initiate dialogue um, to the Taliban. So because the Taliban don't want to talk to anybody, they're just like, nope, not talking. I'm just going to bomb you. Um, the U.S. is like, listen, man, if you want us out of your country and we have stability and this and I, and and the thing is, it's still unclear and I'm not going to say much 
on why we are still maintaining. Some may say there'll be a vacuum. But, you know, Pakistan is playing a really big role in this, too. So, mm. but anyway, here's the thing. It was, it was, it was eerie to understand. It was, it was shocking, actually, to, to understand that the government of Afghanistan, prior to President Trump suggesting dialogue, was always thinking about it, but said it was never feasible. And it was for the first time feasible after President Trump became president. Okay, that was pretty interesting. Now, as I was interviewing this guy, it seemed like he kept reinforcing the idea and, you know, uh, what the environment was like, which was like, holy, I am embarrassed. Like, I wanted to say it, but... I didn't want to give him that, you know, satisfaction. I guess that sounds so bad. But guys, I was completely embarrassed because he was reinforcing that the delegation seemed to be less interested in the challenges that the Afghanistan, uh, you know, the government of Afghanistan is undergoing with the Taliban, right? And more concerned about finding out about the discussions, um, you know, they've had with the Trump administration, like he even kind of almost like straight said, but without saying it, that that the delegation that was there constantly made like um, through shade, right? Like they were throwing shade um, about how the Trump administration uh, is extorting them and limiting their ability to make decisions on their own. And they, they're probably in a position they don't want to be in and. You know, they were constantly saying, no, they're not forcing us. I mean, this is the best position to be in. There's no alternate. Uh, the alternate one is bloodshed. And so they kept saying it, but shade was constantly being thrown in. Yeah, you know, Trump is unstable and he shouldn't have done this. He doesn't understand the dynamics of your environment. And he said it was really weird because we're supposed to be there expressing our concerns in regards to the talks with the Taliban and how it's very difficult because of the Qatari um, based ones and leadership that's still in hiding because they're wanted by the Afghan government for murdering children and innocent civilians, blah, 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 blah. So they were trying to express that and Pelosi and her minions all were just, yeah, you know, president Trump doesn't get it like completely undermining their commander in chief, right? I mean, she works for us and she answers to the president. How dare she say something like that, right? So as they were throwing shade, right, they were kind of requesting, um, you know, hey, you know, maybe we could take a look at the discussions that you've had with President Trump and kind of check to see uh, what you guys said, because we want to know where he might be lacking or where he's doing great and what we can contribute to that conversation. So if you have them, if you have transcripts of these, uh, we would like them. So that way we can address, uh, you know, what you're telling us today. And, you know, he kind of made me feel like they already knew that everything that they're talking about is on the transcripts right now. And there's nothing new to add. And they kind of tried to tell him that through the interpreter. But he said one of the interpreters that was there kind of felt awkward because 
it wasn't appropriate in in regards to the response, and they felt the need that they needed to articulate the phrasing better because it was pedestrian. Uh, like whatever Pelosi was saying was very pedestrian, very aggressive, and not diplomatic enough. So this is the stuff that was conveyed to me. Now, in my article, I kind of just put the summary. I didn't want to get into so much debt, uh, depth of it, but um, it's really, really causing a problem. They're really confused right now. So the Afghan government officials, Taliban leadership that's actually coming to the table are confused. Because with Esper and between them, it's a topic of discussion of reducing troops. But it seems that Pelosi and her crew were, uh, you know, telling them that, you know, yeah, we're going to audit it and check it. You know, if you feel the need that you need more troops, tell us. We'll bring whatever you need. You know, uh, you know, we can fix this. If you need more money, we can fix it. And what they were confused about is, well, the defense secretary is the one that commands the army and he wants to remove them. But here you are demonstrating like you're more powerful than the president, more powerful than the DOD, you know, the secretary of the Department of Defense. And you're offering to bring more troops and give us money um, as long as you can audit our discussions and see if any of those ideas would work better. Like. Guys, this is this is crazy stuff. This is like I I had never seen anything like this before. I mean, I've seen it in um assignments that I've, you know, between, you know, lower level people and yeah, okay, undermining orders or whatever. I've seen it. But nothing like this. So blatant. I mean, our, okay. So my sources are actually like we don't know what to do. Like we're just like in a pickle right now because if that delegation represents the voices of the people and coupled with what the media is spewing, this is completely contrary to whatever President Trump has in regards to his foreign policy. Like he said what he wants to get done. And this creates a massive cloud of uncertainty hanging over the president, the secretary of state, uh, you know, the Department of Defense secretary. I mean, come on. So while our Department of Defense secretary, right, Esper, is meeting with President Ghani and reinforcing, you know, how we're committed, how, you know, we're, you know, impartial, whatever happens in your elections, whatever happens with the Taliban, whatever, we're still here. We have Pelosi coming in on his heels, taking a freaking sledgehammer and destroying U.S. policy, our foreign policy. She decides to sledgehammer right through, completely void any authority the administration has. This is like pure mutiny. This is where we need to put forward the Logan Act. Because, again, the Logan Act, it's a felony for any citizen to interfere in U.S. foreign policy without the authority of the United States. Now, one might argue that Pelosi and Schiff and all those clowns have authority. But in fact, it was found through cases. And um, hold on, let me reference the case. You know, I didn't put it in my article. I don't think I did. I should, though. Uh, I should put it in my article, really, uh, because it's it's pretty interesting Um because there was a case, Curtis Wright Export Corps, um, and uh, United States versus them, and this is from 1936, 
And basically, the court said that the authority to represent the country abroad lies entirely with the president. Now, that is a very specific case. You know, I actually want to, I'm going to update my article after the show and put that in there. Uh, because the president, according to the judge, uh, Justice Sutherland, he alone has the power to speak or listen as a representative of the nation. He's the one that makes the treaties. He's the one that gives advice and consent. Um, you know, makes the treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. But he alone negotiates. He alone negotiates. This is law. Okay? This is law. Marshall. In, uh, in, in the 18, in, in the 1800s, in, in, in the House of Representatives actually had said that the president is the only organ of the nation in external relations and it's sole representative with foreign nation. So for them to go to Afghanistan and portray that they have more power than the president or to undermine what the president has told them is in fact, a de facto, de facto, not the quid pro quo that they tried with King Abdullah, right? They tried to say, oh, we're going to give you this if you give us dirt. This one is telling them nothing about giving us dirt. They were a little bit more, you know, um, soft on their approach, but they were very aggressive because they're angry. Right? They're angry they just got egg on their face. They're angry that he was agitated. They're angry it didn't go their way. They thought pulling the Palestine card would work. So they go there and they try it a different way, which is in fact that undermining the president. And this is like textbook Logan Act. Many times you say Logan Act, Logan Act, Logan Act. They were acting like they have more power than the president. So you have to understand that even though they have quasi-official capacity to go and speak on behalf of the people of the United States, they have no right to say that as the administration is discussing this, we can do more. Just give us so we can audit and check. That's the problem. So the Logan Act, in fact, has never been enforced. So they feel they could just violate it any time. I think this is going to be the time that we're going to enforce it. I think this is the time that we need it. But the concern that we have is that, unfortunately, the discussions that she had and Schiff had and the rest of the delegation had are with people that are actually jihadis, right, that are actually terrorists. So how credible is the information that we can have? That is the way it is. How credible is it that we can have information from them? Because now, you know, they're at neck and neck with Afghanistan. They've got elections coming. They've got everything and nothing to lose, right? Everything meaning their position in, uh, uh, you know, Afghanistan, in, in Afghanistan as a political party, but also everything to lose because if the elections go pear-shaped, then they have nothing. They're back to fighting wars, back to being terrorists. So this is really interesting, you guys. It's interesting how, uh, you know, they don't come out and um, pretty much tell us exactly what's going on. I mean, yesterday, 
I, I, you can't imagine the amount of emails, the amount of texts, the DMs from random people, you know, getting back to me, uh, asking me, well, 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 how did you know? I got tons of messages from Jordan, tons of them saying, you are so right. You are the only person that reported this. And it's like, you know, I kept really good ties with some, you know, a lot of journalists, uh, in the Middle East and in Afghanistan and a lot of people that are close aides, uh, that have American values believe in, uh, the sovereignty of every human being, the sovereignty of nations and the ability to choose. And so on that note, I just wanted to say today the press scathed. Okay. The press scathed because the president announced that there is a total ceasefire, right? I don't know if you guys, um, heard that it happened right before the show was on. So I want to play it because I want you guys to listen to it and we're going to analyze it together because this is really important. So you know how we had this temporary ceasefire so that people can go. Well, at the end of it, you know, you hear the press saying, people said they don't know where ISIS is, but you're saying that they're all locked up. What's going on? Real news. I want you to listen to our president's words. This is so cool. Achieving a better future for Syria and for the Middle East. It's been a long time. Over the last five days, you have seen that a ceasefire that we established along Syria's border has held, and it's held very well beyond most expectations. Early this morning, the government of Turkey informed my administration that they would be stopping combat and their offensive in Syria and making the ceasefire permanent, and it will indeed be permanent. However, you would also define the word permanent in that part of the world as somewhat questionable. We all understand that, but I do believe it will be permanent. I've therefore instructed the Secretary of the Treasury to lift all sanctions imposed on October 14th, in response to Turkey's original offensive moves against the Kurds in Syria's northeast border region. So the sanctions will be lifted unless something happens that we're not happy with. This was an outcome created by us, the United States, and nobody else, no other nation. Very simple. And we're willing to take blame, and we're also willing to take credit. This is something they've been trying to do for many, many decades. Since then, others have come out to help, and we welcome them to do so. Other countries have stepped forward. They want to help, and we think that's great. The nations in the region must ultimately take on the responsibility of helping Turkey and Syria police their border. We want other nations to get involved. We've secured the oil, and therefore, a small number of U.S. troops will remain in the area where they have the oil. And we're going to be protecting it, and we'll be deciding what we're going to do with it in the future. In any event, by the moves that we've made, we are achieving a much more peaceful and stable area between Turkey and Syria, including a 20-mile-wide safe zone. An interesting term, safe zone. That's the term we're using. Hopefully, that zone will become safe. Thousands and thousands of people have been killed in that zone over the years. But it's been sought for many, many decades, and I think we have something that's going to be strong and hold up. 
Turkey, Syria, and all forms of the Kurds have been fighting for centuries. We have done them a great service, and we've done a great job for all of them. And now we're getting out. Long time. We were supposed to be there for 30 days. That was almost 10 years ago. So we're there for 30 days, and now we're leaving. It was supposed to be a very quick hit, and let's get out. And it was a quick hit, except they stayed for almost 10 years. Let someone else fight over this long, blood-stained sand. I want to thank Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Pompeo for leading the American delegation so successfully to Turkey several days ago, along with National Security Advisor O'Brien. I want to thank them very much. The American delegation negotiated the original five-day ceasefire that ended Kurdish fighters to safely leave. It just got them to a point where, frankly, they were able to enable them to get out, to go, and move really just a few miles in a slightly different direction. So this enabled them to do so. Countless lives are now being saved as a result of our negotiation with Turkey, an outcome reached without spilling one drop of American blood. No injuries, nobody shot, nobody killed. I have just spoken to General Mazlum, a wonderful man, the Commander-in-Chief of the SDF Kurds, and he was extremely thankful for what the United States has done. Could not have been more thankful. General Mazlum has assured me that ISIS is under very, very strict lock-and-key, and the detention facilities are being strongly maintained. Uh, there were a few that got out, a small number, relatively speaking, and they've been largely recaptured. I'm also sure that he will be issuing his own statement very shortly. We had a great talk, but we've saved the lives of many, many Kurds. He understands that. That war was going to be vicious and probably not very long. I just want to say, before he closes his um, speech and his announcement and his remarks, just... I believe that the conversations that our president had with Middle Eastern leaders, that including King Abdullah yesterday, uh, who adamantly reinforced how imperative it is to maintain Syria's borders, right, and not allow a war to happen and to allow them to negotiate correctly, played a huge role in this. Because in the end, they have a deep-seated history, not us. And like the president said, that sand is stained with blood for eons. But unfortunately, it has American blood that shouldn't have been there in the first place. That is the problem. We are not the policeman or the referee of the world. And I do understand that in order for us to um, have a base in Germany, we need to offer them protection. To have a base in Saudi Arabia, we need to offer them protection. It's like, you know, a deal. Hey, you let us have a base here and, you know, if stuff goes south, you know, we'll help. 
mutual defense agreements. Every single nation has it, just like I've stated before. Russia is in the Middle East because they have a mutual defense agreement with Syria. So the bottom line is they have decided that they will take the matters into their own hands and that we have no problem helping in mediation. The same position that we have taken in Afghanistan so that we can get out. We shouldn't be there. So what do we do? We help them mediate. Hey, look, this is the best deal for both of you. Let's work like this. This is how you can make money. You could do whatever you want. You want to have people wearing burqas 24-7? You do you, boo-boo. We just want to be out of here, and we want to make sure that it can operate effectively and efficiently as a nation so that you can compete with everybody, you deserve to have your own independent nation and not be dependent on surrounding nations for food, aid, support, military support, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, again, we are not the referee of the world. And this is exactly the point he is making. And it is a very valid point. Because how do you go out and spread yourself thin, Barack Hussein Obama, with a military that is depleted to go and fight in other nations and leave your behind exposed here? That is not how it works. In order for us to be in a position of power and leadership as a nation, and this goes for every single nation in the world, they have to look after their own house. It's like your house is a mess, but you're cleaning other people's houses instead. So, uh, you know, it doesn't happen like that. This is where we're at. This is exactly what is going on. And we're letting them deal with it. And when the borders are drawn with Kurdistan, it'll be the people in that area that deal with it. Right now, Turkey made this concession under pressure from the nations surrounding them and under pressure of understanding just what's going to happen. China was very pissed off because they invested a lot of money to put railways through uh, going all the way to Turkey and leading up to Africa, and they are messing with their plans. Russia's like, dude, I'm going to come from all sides. Don't mess with me because you are causing instability for your own, you know, you know, endeavors of whatever, jihadism, whatever. You're not at that position. We're all aligning with the idea that we want to be independent. So everyone is jumping ship. The only ship that every single nation on this planet is fighting is the corrupt elitists, globalists together, you know, meeting at parties in LA and Obama was in New York, right? Soros, everything, money, 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 money. And the thing is they can't compete with ethos with, you know, the innate, uh, feeling of these nations that have been around so long of love of country. You know, it's a lot easier for someone like Barack Hussein Obama, who was born in Morocco, claims to be from Kenya, but lived in the United States, you know, to sit there and preach about globalism because he doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a deep seated history. He doesn't have, you know, uh, you know, eons and thousands of years of cultural, exp- you know, exposure. It's easy for him. And it's actually very easy for a lot of these clowns that are in office to feel like that because we're such an infant nation. We've only been around less than 300 years. And we're going to turn around and tell nations that have been around for seven, eight thousand, ten thousand years how to operate. No. What we need to do is learn from their mistakes, 
build ourselves up to be representative of what a great idea, a melting pot of people is and stand on that. That is our platform, not to tell everyone you need to be like us. That's the liberal mentality. That's the globalist mentality. That's you, how you create, you know, situations like the Hunger Games. You've got your sector one, which is your globalist, like all those clowns, you know, that are Democrats telling you what to say, how to say it, when to say it, what to see, what to not see, what to accept is truth, what is fact, what is fiction. Th- that is what they do. And then they segregate you dependent on your, you know, ability to comprehend or I shall say it's not comprehension. It's to follow orders. Now, let's let's listen to the closing closing statement and then that snide comment by the reporter as he was walking out. And I'm very happy to have been involved in it, as are our vice president, our secretary of state, and all of the other people on our team. By getting that ceasefire to stick, we've done something that's very, very special. But by getting the ceasefire after a tremendous amount of really tough war for a very short period of days, that is something very special. Our troops are safe, and the pain and suffering of the three-day fight that occurred was directly responsible for our ability to make an agreement with Turkey and the Kurds that could never have been made without this short-term outburst. Should Turkey fail to honor its obligations, including the protection of religious and ethnic minorities, which I truly believe they will do, we reserve the right to reimpose crippling sanctions, including substantially increased tariffs on steel and all other products coming out of Turkey. We are now an economic powerhouse like never before and, very importantly, like no other. Our economic might is stronger than it's ever been, and our competitors are not doing very well. We also expect Turkey to abide by its commitment regarding ISIS as a backup to the Kurds watching over them. Should something happen, Turkey is there to grab them. Just so you know, right now, we have all these clowns literally on life support. Their respirators are on. They are feeling it. I mean, guys, this is incredible because they don't know what to do. These are Republicans that are on life support, and the plug is out. The battery is running low, and they've got no generator. They have tried and tried and tried, and now all the masks are falling. And this criminal cabal, these mobsters are all coming to the surface. And we are now sitting back in our chairs with popcorn, watching them crumble. We have diffused the situation in the Middle East by employing those responsibilities to those in the Middle East. We are not equipped to go through centuries of war and tell you how to deal with it. That is not our business. We are here to provide support because in a competitive global economy, everybody wins. And that is why President Trump is a true leader. And this is why he is winning. He is telling them, we're going to send them back. They're going to go back to their places. They're going to be incarcerated and they're going to pay for their crimes because these nations are responsible for creating them or allowing them to fester. 
countries to come and take those fighters that the U.S. captured and bring them back to their countries for incarceration and for trial. Until just recently, Europe has been very unresponsive in doing what they should have been doing for a long time. Now is their chance to finally act. American forces defeated 100 percent of the ISIS caliphate during the last two years. We thank the Syrian Democratic Forces for their sacrifices in this effort. They've been terrific. Now Turkey, Syria, and others in the region must work to ensure that ISIS does not regain any territory. It's their neighborhood. They have to maintain it. They have to take care of it. That's right. There we go. There were some political pundits. I can't. Okay, before he goes into that, and I don't know what he's going to say, but I'm going to tell you what. The scumbags that we have in office right now and political pundits, like I said, be careful who you follow because he's going to talk about this. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm pretty sure he's going to mention it because I've told you before. People that are throwing their weight behind this rubbish – Right. And supporting this. Did you guys see how they had chemical attacks with phosphorus? Right. Oh, look, Turkey's using phosphorus. What is it with chemical weapons every time we pull out? We wanted to pull out over a year ago from Syria. Oh, chemical weapons. The Assad's doing it. Suddenly that's we stay. And now we pull out and they're like, oh, chemical weapons, BS. This is unacceptable. We've seen the play. We know how it works. We're not biting. And you know what? Again, pay attention to who is breaking down, down to facts. Because even though you see the president retweet them, again, he's retweeted Maggie Haberman, uh, you know, the, the New York Times fashion editor. He's retweeted all these clowns just because he retweets them doesn't mean he agrees with them. Lindsey Graham, clown, clown, clown. It's all coming out because wait till you see my expose on the Ukraine and what he did with McCain and presidential, uh, you know, wannabe Amy Klobacher, whatever you want to call her. She's a clown, Amy Clown from Minnesota. Because this is where it comes down to it. What they did to General Flynn will come forward. And I'm going to be writing that up, and it's going to be awesome. And all of you are going to be like, okay, now it makes sense. Kind of just like how we saw the true face of the Democrats when they went gallivanting, which they did on our tax dollars. Okay? They did that on our tax dollars. Now, take a listen to what the president says of be careful who you follow who responded to Turkey's offensive in Syria by calling for yet another American military intervention. I don't think so. But halting the incursion by military force would have required deploying tens of thousands of American troops against Turkey, a NATO ally, and a country the United States has developed a very good relationship with, including President Erdogan. The same people that I watched and read giving me and the United States advice were the people that I have been watching and reading for many years. They are the ones that got us into the Middle East mess. Preach. never had the vision or the courage to get us out. Preach. What have I said? 
when 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 this happened with Turkey, what did I say? We don't have to get involved. We're going to let Russia take care of it. We're going to let, let Syria take care of it. We're going to let Jordan take care of it. We're going to let Iran take care of it. Iraq take care of it. It's none of my business. Yet we had these political pundits running in how we need to go in there and save the Kurds. Suddenly you see protesters with Kurdish flags. Even the Kurds in America don't understand the dynamics and what's going on and how they're being weaponized. That's the key here. That's the take-home message. They just talk. Yep. How many Americans must die in the Middle East in the midst of these ancient sectarian and tribal conflicts? After all of the precious blood and treasure America has poured into the deserts of the Middle East, I am committed to pursuing a different course, one that leads to victory for America. Through much work, we have done things that everybody said couldn't be done. Today's announcement validates our course of action with Turkey that only a couple of weeks ago was scorned. And now people are saying, wow, what a great outcome. Congratulations. It's too early to me to be congratulated. But we've done a good job. We've saved a lot of lives. Most importantly, we have avoided another costly military intervention that could have led to disastrous, far-reaching consequences. Many thousands of people could have been killed. The last administration said Assad must go. They could have easily produced that outcome, but they didn't. They didn't because you make more money if there's conflict. You make more money when there's war. You make more money and you have more leverage when you cause uncertainty to the EU about their future in oil and gas. It's all fact. And he shouldn't be the one saying, look, we avoided war. Look, we're letting them deal with it. Look, we're rebuilding our nation and our infrastructure rather than theirs because they need to sort it out. Yet he's the one that has to praise himself. Disgusting. In fact, they drew a very powerful red line in the sand. You all remember the red line in the sand when children were gassed and killed, but then did not honor their commitment as other children died in the same horrible manner. But I did honor my commitments with 58 tomahawks. Eight long years after President Obama's ill-fated push at regime change, U.S. troops are still on the ground in Syria. More than half a million people. I'm skipping to the end part. Hold on. There we go. Hold on. Where'd it go? There it is. Oh, it's not letting me. Okay. So what he says is after all these people have died, right? Um, and that's, I think that's where he closes. We finally got things done. He's praising himself, which he shouldn't have to. Now, on that note, I want you guys all to know that as of today, back in 1993, we had those attacks by Saddam in Beirut. I want to remind you that it was Bush Jr. who just a week before those bombings, those barrack bombings and the invasion, blah, 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 had sold off the energy company he bought there because his daddy, 
Bush Sr. told him to pull out, he made millions on that transaction because his daddy helped him do it. I want to just point out the corruption is not just now. It's not just with Pelosi. It's not just with Schiff. It has been an ongoing epidemic, systemic epidemic throughout our government operations since 1776 when we left a few of those clowns that opposed George Washington to sit there in the first place. And we're having our revolution. We are having our civil war extremely civilized and using the weapons they use against us to silence us and to groom us to accept them against them. On that note, I want to wish everyone a great evening. And I will try to upload this as soon as I can um, this evening because you missed the first hour. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful evening.